The rest of us, uh, I'd love for you to grab a Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to get there in just a second. We're continuing our series on discipleship, so this is not a one-off message fixed special for you because somehow you needed to hear that. Though God's in God in His providence and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit appointed this message for today. So indeed you need to hear that because you're here and uh, the Lord is sovereign over everything. You now have heard in a million different ways that the mission of the church is to make disciples. It's not to feed the poor. It's not to provide a, a, a adoption services. It's not to fight for social justice and social equality is not to provide racial reconciliation. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ by baptizing, that is evangelism, and by teaching them to observe whatever Christ has commended us. And we have seen this in a million different ways for the last year, uh, with our book studies, Sunday school lessons, and so on. And you also have heard in countless ways that the way that's done is through the ordinary means of grace. Discipleship happens through the ordinary things that God has given us to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bible reading, preaching, teaching of the word, observation of the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper, prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. That's how discipleship happens, and that's what God appointed and this is all very, very important. And this series on discipleship was designed to help put the mission of the church in practice. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be discipling the nations, uh, people from every tongue, from every uh, appearance, from color of skin, shape of the eye, type of hair, are to come to Jesus Christ and to be discipled. That's what we're supposed to do. How do we do that? That's what we've been looking. And we've seen that discipleship happens in the context of the church. Let me read the, 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 this, the definition of discipleship that we've been using. Discipleship is the constant process in which a Christian is helped by the covenant community, that's the church, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that he becomes or she becomes progressively conform to the image of Jesus Christ and can in turn disciple others. As we've seen, there's a very short window in which a Christian is not also discipling some, somebody else. So a Christian is a disciple who is also making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. During this part of our series, we have been looking at how discipleship happens in the family. And we have been looking at that for a couple of months. The husband disciples and is discipled by the wife. The wife disciples and is discipled by the husband. The parents disciple the children and in some ways are discipled by them as well. And as a matter of fact, the parent-child relationship is defined in the Bible primarily as a discipleship relationship. And that's where we are in our series. We're looking at discipling our children as families. We're, and we, in that area, we're studying four areas. So we're subdividing this subdivision into four different parts. 
we, we, we are studying, we're looking at what the scriptures teach concerning raising our children according to the covenantal promises of God. Remember, God promised to be a God to us and to our children. How does that impact the way we raise our children? Secondly, we do want to look at biblical how-tos of raising children. The scriptures give us practical ways that we are to follow in raising our children. Thirdly, we are going to consider children and public worship. Uh, If you're a visitor with us, you're going to notice that we have a very loud sanctuary for several reasons. We We fit in here like sardines in a can, so that can be loud. But also, it's lost a lot of people. Because we believe that the worship of the Lord should be done by the whole church. And we believe that children are members, covenant members of the church. Therefore, we include them in the corporate worship of the Lord. And when you get bothered by the sound of children, remember, that's the sound of the future. It's a great sound to have in the sanctuary of the Lord. So we're going to take a look at that in the future as well. And then... We're going to finish this section of discipleship, not today, not next Sunday, probably not even by August, but we're going to wrap this up with uh, considering a Christian philosophy of education. And notice that the order of words is important. It's not a philosophy of Christian education. It's a Christian philosophy of education, a biblical philosophy of education as a whole, because that's how we need to, to think. Having said all these things, we're still on that first section. Uh, We started a few weeks ago, and uh, hopefully we'll finish today. Uh, We're considering that we are to raise our children in light of God's covenantal promises. I'm going to spend a little bit of time reviewing what we saw last time, and then Lord willing, move into uh, a new material. As you remember, last time we were together, we saw the family must be the primary place where culture is created. The biblical family is an instituted government. And we don't think of families that way. But there's three spheres of government that God instituted. The family, the civil government, and the ecclesiastical government, the church. And they're instituted in that order in the book of Genesis. But the family is an instituted government established by God at the very beginning of human history, in Genesis chapter 2, the family is instituted. And the constitution of this government is the very word of God. The head of the government, the head of each family, is the husband, the chief advisor is the wife, and the temporary citizens of that kingdom, emphasis on the temporary, are the children. Parents are instructed to raise their children to leave. Uh, that's how God is designed, family. And it, uh, uh, now we're going through that process right now, and it's painful, and when our last child moved out, we spent a, a good couple hours crying, looking for the reason of life, if there's anything left to live for. But as emotional as that was, that's what God called us parents to raise our children to do, to, to leave. And they leave to establish their own families, their own little Governments that, that, that are also going to perpetuate that. And each of these families designed to be a culture with a language, customs, traditions, and countless unspoken assumptions. We talk about that, how each family has a different vocabulary. Right? Uh, if we went around and talked about how each family calls a pacifier, you got different words 
for in different families. Um, hunters, you guys, uh, Adam and Betsy, you guys have a word for pacifier other than pacifier? Passy. Okay, that's boring. Uh, <laughs> Thomas, says you have something more exciting? No. <laughs> okay. Katie. Binky, there we go. That's what the Vanderhoffs do too. How about you, Lutzes? Happies. Makes sense. Makes sense the parents would call them happies. You know? So you can see that even a simple thing like that, you have different vocabulary, different ways to talk about people. When we interview kids to become communicant members, to come to the Lord's Supper, we always bring at least one parent, because sometimes we're going to be talking about the things of the Lord. They know what we are talking about, but because we're using a different vocabulary than they use at home, they, they, stand, no, they sit there with a blank look on their faces, and often we need the parents to translate that vocabulary to them. Uh, so, and they go, oh! And then they're able to interact uh, with us. So you can see the culture is formed in different families, and we're aware of that when you stop and think, but most of the time we are unaware that culture is being created in, in the family. And as we think about that, families are often plagued by two problems. One is, one, one problem takes place when a husband and wife establish a very real culture in their home, but it's a culture devoid of, devoid of Christ. It's a culture that's in rebellion to God and is under the wrath of God. But a problem that the second problem that's way more common in the modern Christian church is that the husband and wife forget that the family is a culture at all, and allowing by default then outside cultural influences to take primacy in how the children are shaped. I remember years ago talking to a parent saying, "You know what? I'm not going to force my religion on my kids. This is a, a, a church member." I'm going to let them, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to step back and let them decide for themselves. And I told her, you know what, you're the only person in the whole wide world doing that. Because everybody else is trying to influence your child. And if you're going to step back, you're going to be the only one uh, doing that. But we Christian families often don't think through this. And they think that there are no other influences. And uh, that's not the case. And in all that, fathers must lead in establishing this biblical culture. And mothers must be convinced of the importance of it. So this is the first element by way of review. The family must be the primary place where culture is created, where kids are influenced. It's the family. And then uh, we saw there's some foundational expectations of fathers and mothers. Um, if you haven't found out that yet, raising kids is hard. Is that, can we agree, some of us? Maybe your children are perfect. And it's super easy. And there's never an issue. And they've slept through the night since they were conceived. And never woke up. And never cried. And never gave you any trouble. But some of us have real children. And that's <laughs> hard. Um, in, order to undertake, in, in order to undertake this arduous task of children, of child rearing, every Christian parent must build a certain basic, basic foundational um, Stones have to lay a foundation in order to build that. And the first, the first expectation that we should have is this. You need to understand that in fulfilling our, your parental duties and privileges, the Bible is sufficient. In being a parent, the Bible 
is sufficient. Bringing up small children can be mystifying and will present, uh, will present thinking parents with many questions, but parents must remember that all the questions that need to be answered can be answered from the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. Uh, I asked you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 a minute ago. This is God talking to his people to, of, of, in the Old Covenant and through them to us in guiding them in how they should conduct life and guiding them how to conduct family life. In Deuteronomy 6, starting verse 4, Moses, speaking on behalf of God, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's basic for everybody, right? Not only Christians are called to that, but unbelievers are called to that too, though they can't. But that's a universal call. And then the rest of the chapter describes how that's going to be done. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." He's not talking about when he says these words. He's not just talking about these literal words here. He's talking about the book of Deuteronomy. He's talking about the law of God. He's talking about the word of God. And those words need to be ingrained in the family. And you can see that that's what dominates the raising of kids. As you get up, you talk about the word of God. As you sit down, you talk about the word of God. As you walk, the word of God governs what you're doing. As you come back home, you talk about the word of God. You uh, write them on your wrists, on your foreheads, and your heart. And here, God didn't mean a literal writing. Don't go around tattooing the Word of God across your chest. That's not, I've seen, I've uh, heard a youth pastor say that's what God commands. That's not the case. He's saying keep it close to your heart. Keep it close to your head. Keep it close to your hands. The doing, the believing, the thinking. This will be controlled by the Word of God. And here, specifically, as you raise children. So the Word of God is sufficient to answer the questions that you ask concerning child rearing. Paul believes, believed that firmly in the New Testament. And he's instructing Timothy, the, the pastor. He says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, is good, is useful, and ought to be used. And he says that it is through the word of God that the man of God can be equipped to be complete to do all, uh, every good work. So every good work is obedience. So if what we need to obey God is the word of God, guess what? That's what we need to use in raising our children. So that's the first basic foundation that you have to lay in raising children. Secondly, you have to need to understand that Discipline is no substitute for regeneration. Discipline your kids, having well-behaved kids, is not a substitute for being born again from above. Uh, remember I mentioned even I, uh, when we cover this, every child, no matter how cute, no matter how small, no matter how helpless, is a sinner. Everyone. Strict discipline may channel that sin in socially acceptable ways 
And we should discipline our children, but that is not, that, that's all it can be. It can modify behavior. It cannot change hearts. Godly, strict discipline must always have a goal that goes beyond well-behaved kids. Listen to how Paul describes your children and my children. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. We just rejoice in the Lord with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Because we firmly believe that the killing of a child in the womb is the killing of a human. Correct? We believe that humans come to existence at conception. We all believe that, correct? I hope so. Well, what is a human being at conception? Dead in trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath. They don't become that later. So just helping them to mind the P's and Q's won't awaken them. Discipline has always to be unto belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that when considering age, the Bible doesn't contrast childish innocence and adult sinfulness. It contrasts immature sins with mature sins. But it's all sin. The third foundational thing that we have to have in place is that we have to remember that godly child rearing is covenantal. The children of believers, although they have the, the nature of sinners have been given a tremendous covenantal privilege. Um, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 7, this is the last passage we're going to turn. The other ones I'll just have you listen to me. Uh, we're going to read verses 13 through 15. Listen for what it says concerning children of believers. Start in verse 13. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to peace. This is obviously not about childbearing, and yet it has implications. When it says that the child of the believer, the believing spouse, is holy. It says that the children of unbelievers are unclean, but the children of Christian parents are covenantally sanctified, even though their nature may not be yet changed through regeneration. They are holy, they are set apart, they are in a specialist with God, even though they, have, they, they may not have been born again yet. So there's a covenantal element in raising children. And the fact that the child is a sinner and has not yet professed faith in Christ is grounds for watchfulness, wariness, and prayerfulness. At the same time, the covenantal sanctification of children is grounds for confidence. When all the teaching of the Bible is taken into account, parents who fulfill their covenantal obligations have every reason to expect that their children will be saved. Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18 say, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting 
on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children to such as keep His covenant and to those who remember His commandment to do them. So there's a promise and a confident expectation of the children of believers who are faithful in raising them will come to the Lord. Any questions? The, for, the fourth foundation, uh, foundation stone that you have to put under your parenting is this. It is absolutely essential for both parents to recognize that the final responsibility for child rearing is the father's. He cannot pass it off to the wife. The responsibility for your children is, the responsibility for the children is the father's, not the mother's. Remember to the le- what happened to the last guy that said, it was the wife that you gave me? It did not work well for him. So man, you are responsible for raising your children. The husband must lead his wife in child rearing. He must not react to her, he must not blame her, and he must not be led by her. This is what headship necessarily involves in a family. The husband is the head of the wife, and he is responsible for all the children. Paul did not make a mistake in Ephesians 6, verse 4, when he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but raise them in the nurture and nomination of the Lord. It's not a generic word for fathers. He's not saying, oh, the masculine includes everybody, because he later on he used the word for parents in the same passage. So he could very well just said parents again, but he directs that to the father, because he is responsible for the raising of his children. It is very important that this responsibility of the husband be embraced by him and understood by the wife as well. And... Guys, leadership necessarily involves initiative. Many men are, have blurred the distinction between being the head of the home and being a queen bee. Those are not the same thing. A slug on the couch may be waited upon, but he's not exercising godly leadership. In Ephesians 4.25, love your wife. In Ephesians 6.4, raise your children. These verbs are active verbs. So leadership requires initiative. In the home, the husband is a picture of Christ. But if he shows no initiative in loving, teaching, or admonishing, he's a lying picture of Christ. All of us husbands are proclaiming Christ every second of every day. But we may be proclaiming a lie about Christ by the way that we lead our families. So each husband, each day, He's talking about Christ through his behavior. What he says is either truth or lie, but he cannot be silent. So, husbands, you're never silent. Guys, as you're looking forward to marriage, you're never silent. You're always saying something about Christ. So masculine initiative means watching over the family without prompting, and it means seeking information about the children from the wife at your instigation. Do you know what's going on in your house? Do you know what's going on in your children's education? Do you know what they struggle with? Do you know what they need to be ministered with? Do you know how to reach them, fathers? Or is your default always, oh, go talk to my wife? If that's your default, you're abdicating the duty that God has given you. 
something that you can't do. At least God is not going to be gentle with you if that's what you are, you are doing. Leadership also involves honoring and respecting your wives. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7? Dwell with them in understanding, for they are co-heirs of the grace of God. And you do that so that your relationship with God, your prayers, will not be hindered. Um, generally speaking, children are way more mindful of dad than of mom. Is that a fair statement? Have you guys experienced that? That the children are more, you know. Usually you don't have a dad saying, wait till your mom comes home. Usually the expression is, wait till your dad comes home, right? That's where uh, a lot of times things are, are said. Fathers must not allow that to be the case. Child rearing is not a competition. I've had people say, man, pridefully say to me, they don't mind my wife at all, but when I say something, they'll do it right away. What a jerk. That's not a biblical leader. That's not a biblical father. It's not a race between father and mother. The man and his wife are on the same team. The fact that the children don't mind their mother as readily as they should, should be understood by the husband and, uh, as a failure on his part. And he must always back her up. Whenever children are looking at their mother, they should see the looming shadow of dad behind her. Whether he's home or not. Because they're one. Leadership in child rearing also involves honoring and respecting a woman's strengths and dignity. So as husbands, as we are discipling our children, we have to, in, by our behavior, respect and honor our wives and teach them to um, do so. In the task of bringing up children, the help the wife brings is not just an area of biological reproduction. She is given to her husband in order to help him bring them up. He, therefore, needs her perspective. He needs her wisdom. And because God wants godly offspring, the husband must, therefore, keep covenant with the wife of his youth. So, guys, if you are unfaithful to your wife, you are discipling your children to hell. God is not kind to those who lead children astray, the children of the covenant. In Matthew 18, he actually says, you know what would be better for you? Put a big stone around your neck and jump into the ocean and die. That will be better for you than to break the covenant with your wife. Malachi 2, 13-16 is very clear about that. Now, we're talking about leadership as part of discipleship and the part of the Father. However unpleasant it may appear to the flesh, God's leadership is necess- necessarily involves sacrifice. So, really, you cannot be a father apart from being willing to sacrifice yourself so that your children can be discipled. And you lead by being a servant. What's one, one of the titles of our Lord is shepherd. And the shepherd is the boss of the sheep. And how, do, how does the shepherd boss the sheep? By serving them. By leading them from the front. By taking them to still waters. 
by taking them to green pastures, by fighting off the animals or the thieves that come to take the sheep away. And that's the picture for the father as well. And then the fifth and last stone on the foundation here is that parents must also remember that young children are not equipped for independence. Young children are not equipped for independence. We see that in educational theory. Uh, people are trying to teach creative writing to six-year-old kids. Give a piece of paper. Just write. Be the next Shakespeare. Uh, children are not ready for independence. Young children are not ready for independence. And we need to consider that if parents do well in the first five years, then they will be spared much grief later. Grown children are to be fully independent. Older children at home are obviously to be quasi-independent as the parents prepare them for the time they leave. But young children are to be dependent. Many parents try to reverse that. They don't do the work needed early and then try to control everything in later years. Um, Ted Tripp has a... a uh, chart on the book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, in which they traces, in the early years, lots of authority over the kids, not a lot of influence. Right? If you come and tell uh, Red or one of the babies in the church, go change your diaper, it's like, might as well tell him to, you know, go solve all the problems in the world. You have the, uh, as much of a chance of cha- changing his diaper as solving all the problems in the world. But you, have, you can manhandle him Put him on the table, change the diaper, and all kinds of authorities. But as they go older, and as you do all this work here, your ability to just exercise authority of them decreases, but your ability to influence them increases. In which now, because you did all the hard work in the earlier years, you can come along them and disciple them and influence them to do what they, God calls them to do. So don't reverse that order as you disciple your children. Any questions? All right. Yes. You're Christy's mom. Yes. We're not done yet, though. So don't quite say thank you because it might... Thank you. So drop the mic and leave, right? That's what you do now? No. <laughs> now, um, one last thing in the eight minutes we have left. Um, I, I think it's very important that we remember, whatever your persuasion is, you have to deal with this, okay? That God promises to be a God to us and to our children. However you're going to interpret that, that statement is throughout the scriptures, and you have to deal with that. The Bible teaches us that the norm for faithful members of the covenant is that their children 
will follow them in their faithfulness. In Psalm 102, verse 28, the psalmist says, The children of your servants will continue, talking about the children of the people of God, and their descendants will be established before you. As Christians, we should know that the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them, as Psalm 103 says. This does not teach automatic transfer of saving grace to our children. That's not what I'm saying. But if we disobey the terms of the covenant, especially with regard to the way we train our children, then we have no right to be surprised with the result. Remember, uh, Proverbs 22 is not a promise. It's a, it's a, a truism. Raise your child in the way they should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Whatever you win them with, that's what you win them to. Raise your child in a certain way, and generally speaking, that's the way that they are going to go. So it's not a promise, it's a warning to us there. But the Bible is full of promises to parents But the promise are for those parents who are in the covenant. Keep the covenant and remember his commandments to do them. In other words, parents who do as they are commanded may comfort themselves with the words of scriptures. God saying through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 65 says, My elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It's a promise to the elect. One of the reasons, though, we fail to comfort ourselves with the promise, these promises is that we are reluctant to assume the converse responsibility for failure. Right? If we say that the way we raise our children has a, a big place in their conversion... We also have to say the opposite, that the way we raise them has a big place in their turning away from the Lord as well. Are you following me in this logic? Now, parents within the covenant can fail to fulfill their covenantal duties with regard to their children. And this is a conclusion we hesitate to draw. And consequently, the promised blessing of covenantal comfort for faithful parents is missed. But just going like blah, blah, blah and refusing to understand it is not going to make it not true. So you stand, you're sitting here, man, I blew it. I failed. My children are not doing well. I know in my heart that I'm a part of this. What do you need to do? Well, what do you do when you sin? You repent, turn to God for forgiveness, and walk in His way. What is it that you can do now to be a godly father? To whatever stage your children, your godly father, godly mother, whatever stage your children are in. And that's what you do. You don't live in the past. You look to Jesus, and you obey Him in whatever stage of life you are in. Now, some may object and say that this is a burden that no fallen parent can bear. Now, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is that in ourselves, none of us is sufficient. 
None of us are sufficient. But these promises were given not to the angels who are perfect, but to us who are fallen. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Jesus could have, uh, God could have made angels, the parents, perfect. Adam, God could have appointed Adam to never fell, and humanity would have perfect parents. And yet, we were given the task to raise children. The promises of the covenant are given to forgiven sinners like us. And because they are gospel promises, they are ours by grace through faith. Christian parents should anticipate seeing their children grow up knowing the Lord. And this should not be seen as an oddity. And I think that's actually most of families here experience, that their children are coming to the Lord. The oddity should be the child that falls away from the Lord, not the child that follows the Lord. And this is important, guys. The conversion experience of, a, of crack addicts who previously rode with the hell angels, hell's angels, should not be the conversion experience that we set before our children. The conversion experience that we should set before our children is the conversion experience that says, you know what, I cannot remember a day where I didn't believe in Jesus Christ. That is the glorious testimony. Yes, God is merciful to the worst of sinners, but can you imagine a more glorious testimony to say, you know what? I really cannot remember a day when Jesus was not my Lord. I cannot remember a day when I couldn't pray to Him. I cannot remember a day when He was not the Savior of my soul. Now, in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers are told to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And notice he says, look behind, on the, raise their head and see if there's an E for elect and then raise them. For the, you know, no, it says, regardless of election, raise them as in the nurture admonition of the Lord. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, and to only the elect children, I say this. He says, no, children, all the children in the church behave in a certain way towards your parents, honor them, because it is right to your Lord, not to your parents' Lord, but to you, to your Lord. Transgenerational blessing is assumed throughout the Bible. Peter says that the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Uh, For covenantally faithful parents, because the promise of Scripture cannot be broken, the Lord's gracious calling of our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren is something in which we can rest. Recently, the, the Lehman celebrated 60, the pastor and Mrs. Lehman celebrated 60 years of marriage. And there were several generations of, of their family. In every generation, the majority of them serving the Lord. Every branch that goes. That's what we should expect in the church of Jesus Christ. We're Running out of time, we have run out of time. Uh, I'll just say this briefly, and we'll cover more next week. I think one concern that may this all may have raised in your in your minds is this: Well, how does this idea that the parent training is so important for the conversion fit with the idea that salvation is by grace alone, uh, through faith alone in Jesus Christ? And as you think about that, I want you to think of, you to think about means. 
Remember what uh, Paul says in Romans 10? No, that, that uh, you must confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that he was risen from the dead. And then he asks, how, how, how will they do that? Unless we do what? Unless we send somebody to preach them the word. God uses means in bestowing his grace to his people. And in the case of families, God uses parents as the means of that grace. We don't stop preaching the word. We don't stop praying because, oh, no, 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 no. That's not by grace through faith because we're using some means. No, we do that because that's what God uses. Right? I'm sorry. I, I like leaving time for questions. I ran up, all the way up against the clock. Happy to talk to you at lunchtime. Not between services. I need to now think about the Lord in His providence really assigned a really difficult passage for today's sermon. And it's just the next one in our series. Now we preach through books here. And it's about the sin that's, that's unto death and whatever that is. And we need to consider that this morning. So I'm going to be thinking about that between now and... Uh, I say that and it sounds like I haven't prepared the sermon yet, right? I have prepared the sermon. <laughs> I need to switch my mind. So let's talk about it over lunch. If you have any questions about Sunday school, let's talk it over lunch. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, God, your promise to us as your people. We thank you that you are our God and the God of our children. We pray that uh, you would bless us this morning as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.